Good morning, everybody. My name is Corey Rosen, and you're listening to The Story Podcast. Today, I have on a super awesome guest, Mrs. Heather Grayberg. Heather Grayberg, originally from southern New Jersey, is an arts executive consultant and director choreographer now residing in Chester County. She is the executive and programming director of the newly founded organization, The Hub for Arts and Culture, based in Chester County, as well as the executive artistic producer of Revival Productions and Chester County School of the Arts located in Coatesville, PA. She has a BM in musical theater from Westminster College of the Arts and a master's degree in arts management and executive leadership from Ryder University. Heather has been performing for over 25 years and has been seen on the creative teams throughout the regions as a director choreographer of over 50 productions. She is a proud member of the Stage Directors and Choreographers Society, a theatrical union, in addition to creating inspiring artistic experiences in both arts, education, and performance. Heather is passionate about arts advocacy and accessibility. Heather, how are you doing today? I'm great, Corey. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Yeah, just took the ride over here from Coatesville. It's been a while, so yeah, I'm, I'm doing well. So what was it as a, as a child that really got you, uh, that really threw you in the theater? Oh, this is a great story, actually. Um, so I grew up in a very musical family. My dad is a pastor, and it was very Southern Baptist and a hardworking family. And so, you know, they were, they were in a Southern gospel band, and my whole life was those old hymns that very, you know, very Southern gospel influence. But uh, my brothers, as I was mentioning to you earlier, they're 10 and 13 years older than me. So uh, they were in high school when I was just in kindergarten, basically. And my oldest, actually both of them, both of my brothers were in a production of Oklahoma. And uh, my oldest brother, he was a senior at the time. He was Will Parker. And my middle brother, Dan, uh, he was in the show as well. And he was actually playing the fiddle in it. And, you know, with the audition process and all that, my mom had gotten the VHS with Gordon McRae and Shirley Jones. And um, I watched that VHS like it was my job. I was obsessed with it. In fact, I would just carry the VHS around with me. That's how much I loved it. And I still have it in my office today, just sitting up on the side. But one day, my dad um, took me to go pick up my brothers early, uh, not early, but just to pick them up. And we were waiting in the auditorium. And I was sitting on the side there or whatever. And my oldest brother wasn't in the title number. You're doing fine, Oklahoma. He wasn't in that. And they're rehearsing that on stage. And I was only five years old at the time. And my brother James goes over to me, go up on stage, Heather, go do it. And I remember it. I just totally remember it. I ran down the aisle and I ran up the steps and my dad tried to go catch me, and he couldn't. And I went up on stage, and I started doing the, all the choreography and the song with all of the teenagers during this rehearsal. And I finished out the whole song or whatever, and then the high school music director, Mrs. Gates, I'll never forget it, um, she actually pulled me and my mom over to the side later. Or, or maybe we came in like the next rehearsal or something like that. And she's like, I want you to audition so you can be in the show. And I sang, I'm just a girl who can't say no, you know, at five years old, like one does. And um, they're like, do you want to be in the show? So they let me like be a little flower girl in it. And I got to do a bow at the end with my oldest brother. And it was a whole thing. So uh, to say that I got bit by the bug, it's like, it was like fierce. I was like injected 
with musical theater at five years old. <laughs> so that's how it all started. And it's, um, uh, I, it, when I say to people, you know, theater and musical theater and the arts is all I've done and I'm quite boring, I truly mean it. You know, from, from growing up in that Southern gospel environment to starting um, in theater at five years old, I've, I've lived this my whole life. So what are some memorable, memorable moments that you've had throughout your, uh, I guess, school career mm -hmm. in regards to theater? Memorable moments. Memorable lessons. Oh, maybe. good or bad, let's think. Um, one thing that was really cool was that in college, I got the opportunity to um, intern with Andy Blankenbuehler, who was the choreographer of um, Hamilton. And um, so I got to, and it, Hamilton didn't exist yet. Right, <laughs> it, was, it was like in like the works, um, but I got to go and uh, observe and, and work alongside of him when he was working on the um, Broadway revival of Annie. And so I got to go in for several days and do that. And I'm actually um, like, I'm in the background on um, a documentary that came out on PBS about the making of that production. Cool. <laughs> Just, they came in and filmed the day that we were in there in the studio working and that was really great. And then, uh, so that was very memorable. Um, I'm trying to think. There, I'm trying to think of like favorite shows I've done. I've actually been trying to think of how many productions I've been in. And I lost count somewhere in the hundreds. I'm so, sure it all blurs together. At it some does. Point. It does blur together at some zone. I have some like hilarious stories. I can't tell you how many times a safety pin has opened on me when I'm getting ready to go into a big dance number. Um, people have forgotten to come on stage. We had the ad lib. Um, I've busted myself in front of 2,000 people, just falling on the ground. I think one of the most memorable things about performing was when I was at Sight and Sound, I was performing until I was 33 weeks pregnant with my oldest daughter. And um, that was a difficult time for me, but also very rewarding and very special. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I know you asked that question, I'm going to remember I, things at two o'clock in the morning <laughs> as everybody does yeah right that's when my best ideas come so when did you start uh dancing and choreographing oh uh, this is a really great question um so ironically i wasn't allowed to dance um until i was i think i was 11 years old and I, you know, I did shows from the time I was five. And then, of course, my dad, being a Southern Baptist preacher, was very conservative about what I could do and what I couldn't do. And I remember uh, for kindergarten, we did a, um, a trip to the local ballet, you know, like the local dance school did a ballet, and we saw it with Cinderella. And I remember just wanting to take dance so badly, and my mom called and got the information. And my dad said no, because he didn't want me on stage in a leotard. And... Um, Eventually, years go on, and I'm pressing in more. I wanted to dance. I wanted to dance. And we had, like, a family friend that owned a dance studio, and I ended up only, honestly, I really only started dance because I was overweight. Mm. Um, and so then I, I did what any good pastor's daughter does, and I made a career of the thing I wasn't allowed to do. And I think till this day my dad does have regrets about it, you know, because I think that back then – when he was very early on in his ministry, there was a lot of legalism. Mm -hmm. And um, he's completely reverted from a lot of that <laughs> tremendously. And um, so, yeah, that's how I started dancing. And then there was a mentor, and he's still alive today, um, 
a mentor in my life. His name is Walter Webster, and I did a lot, a ton of theater growing up with him. And, um, you know, I had teachers give me opportunities to choreograph the school show while I was in school and that kind of thing. But there was one really pivotal, pivotal moment. I think it was sixth grade going into seventh grade where I was taking play, uh, I was taking part in a summer theater camp. And he asked me to choreograph like two or three songs for the, like it was a review style camp. And then also he gave me the song Johnny One Note. And um, I went home, he gave me the song, I learned it that day, and then I went home that night and I choreographed a whole tap dance routine to it. And I came back and he didn't let on that he was impressed necessarily that I did that. Um, but then uh, the local paper came and did an interview with him and did like a whole write up on the camp. And not to brag, but a good portion of that article was about me and how he couldn't wow. believe that I did that in one day. And um, from there, he got, he went on to give me many more opportunities, and I got to choreograph a lot under his direction. And um, so, honestly, it, it really – so dancing came from <laughs> being overweight, and I didn't want to play soccer. I didn't want to do anything like that. Um, and, you know, my parent, my dad finally seeing that this was my talent and he felt good under the guidance of the people that I was taking dance with. Um, but then the choreography came out of people simply giving an opportunity to a girl who was probably too young to have the opportunity, um, but saw something in me. And I feel like that philosophy is something that I'm trying to, um, create in my own realm as a, as a mentor and educator to other people, just give them the opportunity and see where it lands and be there to mentor them along the way. So <clears throat> what has been one of your most memorable or uh, hardest choreography? <sighs> From a practical perspective, I would say one of the hardest things I ever choreographed was Mary Poppins, and that was here at LBC. Oh, wow, um, really? Well, not that it was challenging um, like physically, Right, like, right, yeah. um, but honestly, I also help a lot with the deck moves and um, doing the scene changes. Like when there's a, a dance in the middle of it, mm -hmm. right? Um, so like, there's a whole way that you and that show is a beast of a mm -hmm. show. And I think, did you work on the stage crew on that one? No, no? I, I sat and watched. <laughs> very smart of you. Um, so that was very challenging. Another one um, that was difficult when it was when I did Ruth. Um, Here? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And again, like not a ton of dancing, but I wanted to give more dancing than it originally had. And also, because I directed and choreographed that one, there was no strong reference for that show. So in many ways, so like we had the DVD from before. I only watched it one time because I didn't, I kind of wanted to go into the show with like a fresh set of eyes. Mm -hmm. um, but I watched it one time for context. But the way it was filmed, it was like constant close-ups. There was hardly ever any like wide, wide, shots. wide shots, so I couldn't even see all the time what was happening on stage, so I kind of had to make that up. Um, but I knew I wanted to dance it heavier than it had been, um, and I wanted to make it more like technique-driven and less like musical staging. Um, so there was that. A show that I also find challenging is um, anything that has like a dream ballet in it. Um, like Oklahoma or Carousel, um, for example, because you're you you have Act One and then you have like a ten to fifteen minute ballet right smack dab in the middle of it. Really, and 
you know, Agnes DeMille was the original choreographer of both of those productions. And Oklahoma is what we would consider the first integrated musical. Integrated in that it's really the first, that and Showboat is the first time where the music, the songs are like an extension of the character's psyche. And also the dance is an extension of the character's psyche. So, you know, we have these dream ballets. So not only are we thinking about, okay, what's going to aesthetically look good but we have to do it justice to the character. And I think that's a question I always ask myself. Um, one of my mantras is you're an actor first. Mm -hmm. So whether you're singing a song, you're, you're an actor telling the song, and, and what is the character saying? And if you're dancing, you're still an actor first and you're conveying a story. So those are a couple ones you know, that, are, that are challenging. Um, I get excited by choreography projects that are going to be challenging to me. I oh, love it. Good. And I feel like nowadays I've got enough under my belt that I don't see a challenge and go, oh, no. I usually now I have a frame of reference to go off of to, to get the, the mission accomplished, so to speak. That's awesome. Maybe working with youth is my biggest challenge, if I'm being honest. Why do you think that is? Well, because I've gotten used to doing things at a really high level. And then I have to scale it back to like box steps and side steps. And I'm like, oh, no, like whatever I gave them was just too challenging. Um, so I have to like kind of rewire my brain sometimes and uh, I find that my sweet spot is like seventh, sixth, seventh grade and upward. That's good. Yeah, <laughs> I figured it out. Yeah, that's half the battle is figuring, figuring a lot of things out. Oh, yeah. So as you uh, furthered your career, at some point you decided you wanted to start a company. Yeah, um, I... I truly believe in life that um, Revival Productions was not a dream of mine. I never wanted to start a company that wasn't like a checkbox for me. It was a calling from God. So the way this all kind of came about was, you know, I really struggled with, let's be real, I'm not very old. <laughs> well, to some I might be now. But I've lived a lot of life in what would be a short period of time. And I have a lot of experience for someone my age. And I, um, I struggled very much with getting pregnant when I did with my oldest daughter because my career was really starting to take off as an actress. And I, I was really just, you know, I was going and performing around the country and doing the thing. And then I was here in Lancaster doing Sight and Sound and then bam, got pregnant with Eden. And it was like my whole world was shaken. And um, so, you know, I finished the contract and it was a really hard transition into motherhood as it is for most. Mm -hmm. And um, I just kept praying to God, like, what is the next phase of my life? Because, um, you know, I knew I was, um, you know, I love being a mom. I love my baby, but I am, I'm a worker bee. You know, I love, I'm a leader. I love to, I need to feel invigorated in my talents and my gifts and, um, you know, I just really was like fervently praying to God every single day, Lord, what is the next step of my life? What do you want for me professionally? And one day it was weird. I was in the shower of all things. And I just felt this, the, I was like the word revival just like washed all over me. And I'm like, revival, like what is revival? And it was like, this word stuck with me for, um, two years, the word revival then two years later, I have another baby at this point, and um, I was reading an article that popped up on my social media about the, the city of Coatesville 
which I was living in a township, right? It was still technically coastal, but it was a township outside of the city. Um, but I had been very drawn to the city. Anytime I could, I would drive through the city. And the article was talking all about the revitalization efforts and things they were doing to try to bring the, the city back because it is very impoverished. There's a lot. It's very depressed. And I had some experience in the past in community revitalization through the arts. So that was something that I don't know. I, I know what the arts can do economically for mm-hmm. a city. And suddenly I'm starting getting these ideas and I'm like driving through town and I'm like, imagine if there was some kind of arts center of some kind, and, you know, people could pop across the street, get some lunch or dinner or drink after or whatever it is, you know, and um, suddenly I felt like the word revival had a purpose. Um, so revival productions was created as an economic catalyst for the community um, but just like every vision, um, it's changed, and it's going to change a hundred times over. And every day, I just have to, I give it back to God, and I say, and, and some days, like we don't know how we're going to make it. You know, it's just we. This organization has been thrown every possible challenge you can think of. We're in an economically depressed community. We're in a prominently minority community. Um, you know, there's a lot of oppression there. Uh, we are, you know, like I'm working basically eight full-time jobs for this startup, so to speak, at, at that time. And st- I do have help, don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's still just, it's it feels like, and then the pandemic. Yeah, I was going to say the whole pandemic. The pandemic. And then well. we have a, a board member who did something not fraudulent with, uh, well, our, our there was a board member who did something illegal. Not in our, like our personal realm, like our, and then, so we have to navigate that and it does involve our building. So, you know, it's been completely challenging, but every day I have to give it back to God. I say, God, this is not your company. This is not my company. It's your company. Um, No one owns a nonprofit. At the end of the day, I have nothing to gain from Revival Productions. Um, But I believe the people we impact through the art we create and through the education educational opportunities we create that's that's the mission work and um you know revival's not a christian institution i don't want to be a christian institution um but we have i've even i've gotten to see souls saved through it which is really cool and that's not like you know that's not the thing we're trying to do but it like just through people yeah it just happened and that's really rewarding it's amazing so what are some of the biggest uh accomplishments of revival that you are proud of Mm. Um, a couple of months ago, we received a grant for $30,000 to start a, um, like a sliding scale income-driven tuition payment program for our students. Um, so essentially, a family can submit um, you know, income-verifying income, uh, documents, and then they get put into our table, and you know, they might get 50% off for an entire year of all of their classes and lessons and things like that. And that is tremendously valuable to me. And because I know just how expensive I'm a parent too, right? Like I know how expensive the extracurriculars and those things are. People said, oh, those diapers, they're so expensive. No, dance classes, lessons, all those things are expensive. But those are the most valuable things. Um, So that was a tremendous accomplishment. Um, Our partnership with the new company that I'm actually working for, the Hub for Arts and Culture, just having that new connection and um, those opportunities that are going to come from the hub. Um, and I was, I didn't found the hub. I was asked to work for the hub. 
Um, so I'm starting to like wean away a little bit from revival as the goal and, you know, focus more on the hub's mission. Um, but that's a, a tremendous accomplishment. Um, we have students that are going on to, to do great things. Um, I think that those would probably be some of the biggest accomplishments. And just, I think, also being able to do shows that are accessible to the community. Mm. Um, or I think there's, there's no greater joy I get than being someone's first experience at a live theater show. It's like, so it brings me so much joy. So uh, we mentioned a few of the setbacks. How did you uh, manage manage those? What what are like the pandemic or uh, stuff like that? How did you navigate those? Yeah, well, I'll uh, let you know when I figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> Every day, there's filled you're filled with challenges, and I have to create boundaries for myself, Heather, the person, mm. to like shut it off and say, even though this this company is very much an extension of myself, this is where I, I end. Yeah, this yeah. is where I end, and everyone else can wait. It's not a big deal. <laughs> um, but, no, one thing that we did that I thought was brilliant was, you know, we um, started working on our current building that we're, we rent. Um, we started negotiations on that before COVID happened. Mm. Like, there was, like, whispers of COVID, which sounds like a really bad soap opera. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there was, like, whispers of COVID um, when we were starting to do the tours and everything, and then we started negotiations on it before the shutdown happened and whatnot. Um, and then in good faith, um, you know, we went through with the project and we decided to open anyway, which I, I don't want to say I regret it because if we've, there was no other choice, mm -hmm. right? Like when did things, I still feel like things are more normal now with COVID now that you don't have to like shut down the entire operation if somebody gets sick and things like that. And that only really went away like six or seven months ago, mm -hmm. maybe. But, um, one thing that we did that I thought was so brilliant was that we opened in July of 2020. And we couldn't operate as normal. We couldn't. And it was so sad and it was hard. But we did what we called a, um, oh gosh, what did we call it? The, uh, oh my gosh, the Fine and Performing Arts cohort. And every day, we hired real certified teachers. Every day, we had students in kindergarten through 10th grade come to our facility and they got to do their cyber learning. And we had two mm -hmm. different spaces, one for the lower school, one for the upper school. And these teachers and aides assisted the students with their cyber learning. And then at the end of the day, they got to do different arts classes. And at the end of the year, they did a little show. So we did, um, we did like yoga, dance, music, acting, and fine art classes with these students. So that not only kept the, the lights on, mm -hmm. um, but it gave children an opportunity to have some kind of normalcy. And till this day, I'll still have families say we were just so thankful and appreciative of that opportunity because our kids would have gone crazy or we wouldn't have been able to, how would we have navigated work? So that was a really, that is probably the smartest thing I ever did. And I will say this, it came from my dome piece and just had, <laughs> like, I didn't steal the idea from anyone. That was my, you know, I, we sat around the table myself and my husband and, um, our nanny, actually, who's now my best friend in the world. But um, we were just like, how could we fulfill a need for families right now and also make it work? And then I was like, what about this? Well, what about that? And then, like, between the three of us, we came up with this phenomenal idea. Um, so we navigated COVID in that way. We did a lot of mitigation stuff, as many theaters did. Now, our black box, it has an occupancy of 150 people total, but we don't sit seat that many. 
Um, we typically only seat somewhere between 80 to 90 in a show comfortably. Um, so, you know, we had to, we, we created like an outdoor like bar concession area out of an old piano that was left behind and painted the oh, piano. Funny, yeah. And we did that. Um, we, you know, we'd have everyone leave at intermission and fumigate the room. Mm. And, um, you know, we just got creatively adaptive. And um, so, yeah, we mitigated that in that way. What's been hard is that having a, you know, so the conservatory, which is what we used to call it, now we are, we've separated the company and now it's called Chester County School of the Arts. Um, that started in the middle of COVID, right? So we didn't have like open houses and, and come check us out and musical, you know, music uh, instrument uh, petting zoos. Like we didn't do any of that kind of stuff because we couldn't. So it, it feels like we're starting over all the time because we never got that like regular opportunity like other companies might have. But you know, people, especially my dad, likes to say, you know, if you could survive that, you can survive anything. And I'm like, but dad, I still don't feel like I'm surviving. And, you know, we are still feeling the aftershocks because a typical business will take anywhere from like two to three, maybe sometimes even more up to five years to get into the black financially. And, um, you know, we're kind of in that zone too, but we did it in the middle of a pandemic. So we don't know what those statistics look like. Right. I mean, companies that had been around, theater companies that had been around for 100 years almost shut down. Yeah. And, and don't exist anymore. And don't exist anymore. And it's so sad. And, you know, we didn't have, like, tremendous access to certain forms of funding because prior to opening our facility, Revival operated on a very small level. We did summer camps in the summertime. And then we'd maybe do, like, two, maybe two or three pop-up events throughout the year, but they were very, very small. And, you know, so we didn't have, like, a tremendous financial history to even get certain um, loans or grants or things like that. So, you know, we've, we've made it work. There's still challenges every single day. And any nonprofit will probably tell you the challenge is money, always. So donate to nonprofit organizations. We work our tails off to help people. Um, you know, and we're still, we're still navigating those things. And, you know, the interesting thing about Revival right now is we've, we're expanding our reach beyond Coatesville. And um, because there's a demand for us in other places, people want us to come to them. And, you know, we're like, oh, that's not how we pictured it. We pictured it as a brick and mortar right downtown on the main strip. And that was what it was going to be. But just like anything, you know, we just kind of ride the wave and see where it takes us. And sometimes it's just throwing things to the wall and see what sticks. Yeah. That's where we're at. No, I completely agree with you. That's all. That's all. That's what it's like for for this podcast, especially because people are like, oh, you should come out to uh, this place. I'm like, but I don't have the infrastructure. Right, right, right. And you know, with um, with having a company or any kind of enterprise, um, I feel like I'm always in this place of chicken or the egg. Mm. Well, we were talking about marketing before, right? Um, all right, so you need to market to get the word out there, but you need to get the money to be able to market. But where does that money come from? <laughs> you know, right, like, yeah, yeah. Like, but where does it come from? And, um, and you know, nonprofits, while we have the opportunity to fundraise, um, it's hard to get certain grants. Well, grants are actually a very small portion of what um, nonprofit organizations get. Um, it's usually those sponsorships and, like, the personal donations mainly because grants are so hard to get. Um, and we've gotten a good number of them, but um, they're competitive. Right. So, but at the same time, you have to have a history, like a solid three to five year history at least. 
to get some of the bigger ones. And, you know, not every foundation or whoever's being the grantor, you know, is going to um, supplement to you because of this is what we support, you know, and you don't fit it exactly. Or it's very, you know, there's a lot of details that go into all of it. And, um, but yeah, I'd like every day again, like where does this stop and where do I start as a person and creating those boundaries? And let me tell you what, for any business operator out there, or owner, or whatever you are, therapy is a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. It is. It's helped me learn that, you know, my identity is not in this company. First of all, my identity is in Christ, but also, like, who is Heather the person? And the things, um, there's so many different attributes about all of us. Um, and sometimes our attributes, depending on how our life conditions are at the time or what we're doing, our attributes can actually become negative yeah. if we're abusing them. So, being a woman. You don't say. You don't say. <laughs> what are some of the challenges that you've had to face? Um, any pushback because of that? Or Oh, my gosh, Corey. Do you have all day? Um, I wouldn't, so, like, here's, the, I wouldn't say I'm, like, I'm a feminist because I feel like the idea of what a feminist is isn't, you know, I, I don't think things are black and white. Maybe I am a little bit, but um, maybe not everything under that label, so to speak. Um. I have had so many misogynistic comments, and I think it's just condescending nature. Um, And just the way people talk to me versus a male colleague. Um, I'll give you an example. I was early on in starting Revival, and I contacted a local organization that I thought, they're also an artistic organization in town, and I had a venue at the time where I could do some things, and um, it was like an old element, uh, middle school. It was, it was dank, let me tell you what. Um, but <laughs> it was a place, and we did two years of summer camps out of there. It was great, you know. You start humbly. We're still in very humble beginnings. Anyway, um, so I made the connection via email, and I, um, I think I mentioned, you know, who I am. I'm this with Revival, and I said, you know, my husband, who's our resident music director, you know, we would love to talk about maybe doing a partnership concert. You know, we can supply artists and dancers, and maybe you can play your uh, your band or whatever. So anyway, the guy eventually calls me back. He's an older gentleman. That has nothing to do with it. I don't care how old you are. Like, right. misogyny is not okay. <laughs> um, so anyway, he he's like, who are you? And, you know, what are you doing? And so I kind of explain to him what I'm what I'm saying, what I'm, what I'm hoping to maybe do together. He goes... You do understand that these things take time and rehearsal, right? And I'm like, well, I rehearse for a living. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes, I'm very well aware. He's like, and you do understand these things take money, right? And I was like, yeah, like, I, we pay. We, we plan on paying people. And he's like, well, how do you plan on doing that? I was like, well, we figure out what we're going to do, and we go get sponsors to do it, to support us. And then he goes, well, I really want to talk to your husband. Oh, Corey, I was so naive back then. I didn't know how to handle the situation. And now being on the other side of this, this is now, that was like four years ago. I'm such a different woman today than I was even two years ago, um, having gone through the pandemic and this business and everything so far. Um, so I'm like, uh, like, you want to talk to my husband? He's like, yeah, I just really want to talk to your husband. He's welcome to come to any of my rehearsals. He can do that. So I just like, you know, I kind of dismissed myself. Um, so that's one example. Um, you know, I really want to talk to your husband. Um, 
there's sometimes, um, you know, recently we were working on a deal for a building downtown, and that this is with the hub. And, um, you know, I had, uh, we were negotiating on this property for a year, and it fell through, not because of us, but because the other person and the deal was just going to be horrific. It did not make financial sense. Um, mind you, I don't think they're doing so hot, to be honest. But um, he came to me and he was talking to me. He's like, okay, well, I'm going to have to talk to so-and-so about this, and I need you to be okay with that. I was like, yeah, okay. He's like, well, you know, you do have a strong, uh, you, should, you have a strong personality. And the thing is, if I were a man, I feel that I would be respected by this person. But because I'm not a man, I don't play any harder than he does. You know, um, and I think there's just like, con- I hate like, you know, you know, I'm just so you have so much passion. It's just condescending. It feels like a pat on the head. I could go on. I won't. Right. But um, instead of ambition, it's more of. And also I'm yeah. five foot one, barely. And like you could throw me across the room like because, well, I used to get thrown across the room as a dancer. <laughs> right. Um, and I'm tiny and I'm like a small package. Right. Um and I feel like, and this man actually said to my boss, I'm scared of her. Can you believe that, Corey? Well, I took it as a compliment because that's the only way I could get yeah, right. my way with this guy. I'm scared. He's like, I'm scared of her. Like, I don't, and I think that I have that effect on, I, I think I have that effect on men, to be honest, um, professionally. Not all of them, though. I think the ones that I want to work with, and let me just say, like, my, my boss right now, the, the founder of the Hub for Arts and Culture, I've known him now for three years. He is a theater um, uh, philanthropist and a financer and um, just truly has a heart for empowering lives through the dollars that he has. And he, has, he assembles investors to invest in the arts. It's really, cool. really cool. The, it's a whole model of how he does it. But he you know, sought me out uh, three years ago, and then we've continued this relationship. And he's someone, he's in his 70s, he's someone who, the fact that he values me and sees me and wants to develop me, that speaks volumes more so than the guy that, you know, says I have a, a big personality, I'm a lot to handle, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been called a spitfire. It, that's not a compliment, um, I'm just a businesswoman, you know? Right, yeah. So, um, but I get to the point, and now I think back, like, okay, Heather, if I could go back in time and have that conversation where, you know, that guy said, well, I'd really like to talk to your husband, you know, how would I handle that now? I'd probably say, I'm sorry, but, you know, we're going to have to start this conversation over because I'm the executive this, of this company, and if you want to get to him, you have to get through me first. And, you know... I don't want to do business with people that aren't going to. You don't have to like me. You don't even have to respect me. Just keep your distance and keep your snide comments. Because that's one thing I don't, I won't, I can't say I won't do it back to somebody because sometimes, you know, I'm human and I err. (laughs) And I, you know, um, I just don't have respect. I, I, I just can't stand misogyny. And I think it's time that we... I don't want to say we call it out like, you know, whatever, you're a misogynist, but we find tactful ways of stating our place and saying, I'm a professional woman. You're not going to talk to me that way. We're going to look at the black and white facts on paper and go from there. And um, 
So to say it's a challenge is an understatement, but I think that God has aligned a lot of amazing women. And I think that's the challenge too, growing up in church. You know, women should be silent. Um, you know, like the women should dress a certain way or look a certain way. And, you know, I've it'll even... It'll be a stumbling block. For it'll be a stumbling block. You know, I've even said uh, recently, like on a Facebook post of somebody, I don't even remember what the original, it might've been from my pastor, he posted it. And I can't remember what it was about, but I mentioned on there, I don't feel like I identify with other women at church that often. Um, not that I don't try to, but I live in a man's world. <laughs> and right, I live right. and I live in a man's position. And there's other women at church that do that too. And I'm not saying that like if you want to be a stay-at-home mom, I was a stay-at-home mom for a period of my life. And there's things I loved about that and I miss parts of that. Um, ultimately I don't think that's what I thrived in. Um but I do miss it some days. Um, so I think it's a lot of undoing and realizing, like, what does a godly woman look like? Deborah was fierce, right? And just because we are female doesn't mean that we should be less than. Um, I think it's just that it is every day we're still chipping away at that glass ceiling. And I think that God is equipping a lot of young women right now to do that um but hopefully we can do it in a godly image <laughs> that that's the other that's the other trial about being a strong woman you're you're so everything is so left or right right now um that and well if you don't do this and you don't support that and this that and the other thing it gets it gets really it's fuzzy very hairy very quickly yeah so you know i can only work on my little corner of the world and hope that i do good for other people but i won't be disrespected anymore that's a big thing for me Talking about working uh, as a female, you were also pregnant while mm -hmm. working. How does how do you work around that? What were some of the challenges, some of the joys, some of the concerns? Yeah, well, when I was at Sight and Sound, I performed till I was 33 weeks pregnant, and then the contract ended. And it was hard for me because I, I really wanted to stay working. I wanted to be in the next show. I wanted to do the next thing. And ultimately, it didn't happen that way. It didn't work out um, for me. Um, but I believe that... that it paved a better way for my career. Becoming a mother has made every aspect of my life better. I have more um, sympathy and empathy for people. I I hear them. It's like it's almost a challenge. Like I used to be like real hard on things. Like you know, and I probably sound that way um, still, and I probably am because at some point or another, I'm like, get over it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, I'm so triggered by everything. You know, I truly understand there's trauma and there's things that are triggering, so to speak. Um, but, like, come on. You know, this isn't one of those. Let's figure it out. Anyway, um, so becoming a mother has impacted my life in every single way. And even professionally, it has made me better. Because I feel, and I'm, this is from someone who's made every single mistake in the book and will continue to make mistakes all the time because I'm human. Um but I'm always striving to get better at it, mm -hmm. at, at being a business leader or, a, or, you know, whatever I'm doing. Not even just business leadership, but being someone else's employee. Um, it was hard to navigate, particularly as an actress, because I felt that when I got pregnant with Eden, my career was going to be over. Mm. Um, but it was shifting. It was shifted. And I still performed a, a few years after. Actually, I had Sela, and then two months later booked a gig, taking 
my head and I remember like I'm like breast pumping in the dressing room and everyone else is like I'm gonna go to the club later and I'm like wee woo wee woo like um um I did board meetings breastfeeding a baby at the same time I think for me it's been about bringing my children along for the journey with me too um you know they say having a baby changes everything it it does in Mm -hmm. so many ways but I think that one thing I witnessed growing up is I feel like I mean, because my mom started having kids in the 70s, right? Back then, it's like you stop everything. There weren't as many working mothers back then. Um, I I never wanted my children to feel like they are the reason I didn't pursue things professionally. Mm. And certainly, like, it has to look a little different than I thought. My My life plan turned out very differently than I thought it was going to. But that's why, you know, we should make plans for the future but also be willing to give into what god wants them to shift into and we can't just like you know have like the the grips of life on this thing it's okay there's peace in letting things go um and i'm feeling more and more content with where i am i've i've struggled with contentment my whole life i'm a very type a person i'm the person that wants all the accolades on the wall I'm the person that wants the pat on the back that said you did a really great job. And even when I get that, I still don't feel like it's enough. So, you know, um, that was a big challenge. That's been a big challenge for me. And I will say right now I'm like in this place of I've been weeding. You know, God's either weeded things out of my life intentionally or he's made me do the weeding. Um, And when it comes to parenting – Again, I want my daughters to see a woman who, who knew that God had a plan for her and chased after God's plans for her, not just, you know, feeling demised by the things I didn't check off on my personal box. Um, and I've been doing a lot of reading. One thing that I've tried to commit, my, ever since I finished grad school, I really wanted to commit to trying to read at least one book a month. Any book at all. Really? Could, yeah, everything from, like, self-help to, like, novels to the most random material some of it's christian some of it's not like you know just a little bit of everything so one book i'm currently reading is atomic habits by i think his name is james clark i'm in the middle of it right now and it's taught it's kind of getting you away from the idea of setting goals but instead like changing your mind frame it's all about habits like creating good habits and getting rid of bad habits and um you know one thing he says in there is that if you make 1% improvement every day. If you just focus on doing like 1%, then, you know, the way everything compounds, you'd make about 37% improvement an entire year. That's significant That's, an entire year. Yeah. So, you know, I'm just trying to focus in on improving myself, the person, and especially the mother, so that my girls can see someone who... Um, who, you know, goes after it, so to speak, but does so in the way that God wants them to and not in the way that the world wants them to. There's, there's a healthy way to do things and an unhealthy way to do things. Oh, my gosh. And I've been very guilty of unhealthy behaviors. Yeah. Tremendously. Um, and, you know, I work on it every day. And when you can show me a perfect per- person beside Jesus, then, you know, maybe I'll quit and give up. <laughs> but... um. You know, that's the thing. I'm not looking for people who are perfect ever. I'm looking for people who are just constantly trying to improve. So how do you deal with those bundles of joy and run a business at the same time? It is hard. I have a lot of help. I didn't in the beginning. 
Um, about three years ago, my in-laws moved to the area. I give a lot of credit to my father-in-law for me being able to even have a career. So, um, you know, we moved to Exton originally while I was at Sight and Sound because my husband was working in Philly. And then we moved to Coatesville because um, it was like right in between Lancaster and Philly and there was just like a lot of opportunities all around and I've, I've utilized all of them. It's been amazing. Um, but, you know, until, so my youngest daughter was born in 2017. I was pregnant with her and, you know, I got pregnant with Sayla when Eden was 10 months old which was also, surprise, challenging. After about three days, I got over it. <laughs> I was like, okay, this is what we're doing. I guess so. I had a little bitterness, but I got over it. Um, towards like the end of my pregnancy, my father-in-law decided he was going to retire. And um, he said to them, and I struggled with my pregnancy with Sayla a little bit um, physically and panic attacks and some things like that. And um, he told his boss, he's like, I'm going to retire in August. Um, I'm going to go down to Pennsylvania and help my daughter-in-law and son uh, and son a couple days a week. And I'm just going to work from home, you know, those days. And when she needs help, I'll go down about, you know, so towards the end of my pregnancy there, he helped me and then he retired and he would come down. So I would, you know, I was working at LBC at the time and I had other things I would do elsewhere. Um, he would come down every Monday night and then leave Thursday morning. So that way I could go to work and not have to pay for a babysitter because I didn't have any other family nearby at all. And until they sold their house, that was like another year and a half later, they finally sold their house and then they moved to Cochranville. Um, but, and then even now, like when we need help, we have him and then we have a nanny who, like I said, is like my best friend now. Um, she's like also acts like a mother's helper and just helps me with a lot of different things. Um, I have a tremendous support system. And so, you know, it's been a joy, I think, for my in-laws because my older niece and nephew, um, they're, you know, they're very present in their lives still, but, like, they're in Virginia, so they don't get to be there for everything. Whereas with Eden and Sayla, they get to be, like, they're, like, the ultimate grandparents. Um, and my father-in-law has helped me tremendously, tremendously with the business. He was our CFO for a couple of years, um, and he's, like, basically the maintenance guy. <laughs> and yeah. everybody, he's just there and everything. So um, you can't parent a child without a village of people and you know you have to you know you have to kind of I didn't have that village before I had people I could ask to babysit and things like that but now I feel like I've gotten to this place where I've I've just got a support system around me and that's tremendously valuable so we're kind of running out of time now so okay. I have some general questions that I like to ask everybody yeah what first off what is worship to you I think worship is praise. Like it's that time where I get to kind of meditate and like empty, like empty the junk from my life and just focus on God and, and the person of Jesus and just give thanks. Like I'm usually like when I'm, you know, singing and you know, praising and everything, but I'm also kind of thinking about God. Thank you for this. Thank you for that. Like, you know, we get so caught up in the muck of life mm -hmm. and like the, I don't have this or I don't have enough money or you know, this is my big problem that we just stop. We don't stop and just pause and focus on the great things that God's provided to us. What are some of the mistakes that you have seen made or that you have made yourself in regards to a performer as a business? And uh, how can we prevent those or give advice to prevent those in the future? I like to say we need to create replaceable jobs with irreplaceable people. 
Mm. Um, so whenever we're creating positions in the workforce, and this can be in volunteerism, this can be in any any situation, but when you get somebody who's irreplaceable and who's passionate about their work and about what they do or the institution or whatever it is, develop that person. Don't don't undercut them. That's my that's my big thing there. What are some? Uh, I guess that 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 would that would uh, apply to the next question. Maybe what's the best piece of advice someone has ever given you? Just do your work. That was from, <laughs> I know it sounds so simple. That is the best advice I got it from my college um, voice instructor. She was at the Met. She's on the Wall of Fame at the Met. She's phenomenal, Claudia Catania. Uh, she said to me, "Just do your work," and that's the biggest. That, that's what it is. Just do your work and get it yeah, done. So, sometimes <laughs> the best pieces of advice are simple little nuggets are like so that. So simple. Yep. Um, one of mine was just do it. Just do it. it, you, it you stole from that Ch- from Nike. No, it wasn't from <laughs> Shia LaBeouf. It wasn't from Nike. It was from my friend. Uh, we were just at the Dirty Old Tavern. I talked about uh, this concept of of a podcast. I was. You know, something I wanted to do. I think that's a big thing because everybody's always like, you know, like, yes, we should make calculated decisions. You don't want to do something super crazy, but like, just go do the thing. I mean, don't dump your entire life savings into no. it, but <laughs> try it. Just do it. Yeah. Just do it. Gosh, what do you have to lose? Right. So, uh, what are some of the uh, biggest blocks for you? How do you, being a performer, you've dealt with, you, like you said, hundreds of performances and everything. I'm sure there's a lot of rejection into that. Mm-hmm. How do you deal with that? How do you ad- advise others to deal with that? Um, I think that rejection for me got a little bit easier as I got older um, because being on the other side of the table so much, I've realized sometimes like you don't get the thing because of something silly like, oh, you don't fit the, per- the original person's costume or you're too short next to this person, things that aren't, you know, <laughs> you have no control yeah. over necessarily. So um, I also like to say that some of the best no's in my life have turned out to be the best yeses. And sometimes, um, you know, the weeding, the weeding that I didn't know needed to be done. What is one of the funniest moments that you remember from a show? Oh. Oh, my goodness. I'm trying to think. I know there's a million of them. Um. Oh goodness gracious, Corey! I'm on the spot. A funniest moment from a show. Well, this one's not funny. <laughs> no, that's really unfortunate, actually. Um. Go ahead. Do you want to hear funny, funny or worse? Still, okay. We can do both. I <laughs> my senior. This isn't funny, but I guess in hindsight, I'm like, oh gosh. In senior year of high school, I got, like, food poisoning, like, 15 minutes before I was supposed to go on stage. Oh, no. And, like, the little trooper that I am, I, like, you know, was sick or whatever, and I went on stage, and I just, the adrenaline kicked in, and I and I just, I powered through. That's just a memorable one. Okay. That was a very memorable one. But nothing but, bad happened, I guess. Uh, well, I mean, no, I, I muscled through. Okay. Somehow, it was a miracle. Um, funny, th- funny things. Gosh, like I said, it's going to come to me at 2 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> no problem. Oh, I lost a tooth when I was a kid. I should say that. I lost a tooth on stage. How'd that happen? It came off, like, right off stage. Well, I was a kid. Oh, right, gotcha. So, okay. um, no yeah, it wasn't impressive, issue. but I had to go into the next scene with, like, tissue. So that was kind of cute. <laughs> oh, and one time I was in a show, and I was doing this dance, and it was, like, in My Fair Lady, and I was doing these, like, big high kicks things. 
and the guy came out and like hit my leg and I fell right on my booty right in the middle of it but it was like I'm pretty sure I think he was saying the word rumpus at that same time pick up your rumpus boom and I fell it was like you would time it but it didn't that's happen that way of, that's funny. yeah lots of little isms that's the joy of live theater you truly never know what is going to happen and I love that what do you uh, is there any advice for theater people out there into what they should do or how they because uh, for theater it's multiple fa- multifaceted you can be a performer, you can be a backstage director, you can be all these different things. Do you, What's your advice to those who want to be in theater? Absolutely. Do not lie or over-inflate. Do not lie on your resume or over-inflate it because the industry is so small. Like if I see somebody that did a project at such and such theater, I'll contact a colleague theater. or yeah. somebody I know from that theater. I get contacted all the time about like, hey, have you worked with so-and-so? What do you think? There's one time I even got a resume that um, it was a show I directed, but she didn't list me as the director. She listed somebody else. I'm like, you're really going to audition for me and list somebody else as the director on the show that I cast you in? And I don't know that she did it. Sometimes people do it to, like, diversify so they don't have too much of the same person on there. Uh, There's another time I was hiring – I was looking for a production manager for a show that we were traveling um, just to kind of coordinate the tour, and he said – he emailed I didn't end up hiring him in the long run. He emailed me and asked, like, you know, could I be the assistant director on the show? And I was like, well, you know, I don't really think we need one. You know, this the director really seems to have a stronghold on what they're going to do. And he's like, well, do you mind if I just put it on my resume? Because it'll look really good. And I just honestly, this is probably my nivity. I don't remember if I responded back to him or just ghosted him, um, which was probably not professional of me. But this was like years ago. I was a newbie, right? Um but I'm like, you're going to really ask me if you can lie on your resume to look better for other people. Why should I believe anything on your resume that you just gave me last week? Right. You know, like, so just don't do it. It's not worth it. Um, we're not looking for people all the time that have the most tremendous resume. Be kind. Be kind. Be easy to work with. Don't start drama. Be understanding. And at the end of the day, we're not better than anybody else. Yeah, I was about to say, you can have the best resume in the world, but if you're an awful person to work with... I don't want to work with you. And, you know, I've sometimes been difficult to work with, and I will admit that. And I've had to change myself a lot. Um, but it doesn't mean that you don't stick to your guns on certain things. But the other thing I've learned, too, is, like, you know, with me, like, leading an organization and, like, you know, actors, don't be a complainer. Like, complaining, complaining about every little thing. Because you would not survive in like my position, to be honest. I was like about to say, yeah. it is so I have so much more respect and I can go back in time and be like, gosh, Heather, you should have shut up back then because you don't know the stress that people in the higher positions are under to make it work. Just to get the financing to make a show happen is like it's it's ridiculous. It's, it's, ridi- it's yeah. ridiculous. So just be modest, be humble, be kind, don't lie on your resume, be easy to work with. But again, that doesn't mean let yourself be abused, no, right? Right, yeah. <laughs> There's a difference. There's a difference. So, last question. Yeah. What are you most excited for for revival? What stuff coming up for you? Where can people find you? Yeah. Um, I'm most excited for we've divided the company in two. Um, the conservatory that used to be, you know, a department of revival productions is now a separate company. It's a for-profit company now owned by Revival Productions, the nonprofit, and now we have an asset which is this new company. It's Chester County School of the Arts. We are moving to just outside of the city where we are, and Revival is taking a short, a very short hiatus to kind of figure out what the next step is. 
Um, but it's likely going to turn into a touring company. Um, don't know how big the tours are going to go, but that's kind of the direction things are going because venues, um, I think for me too, I'm trying to figure out, I'd like to be a nonprofit organization that addresses arts accessibility, um, but also can chip off that um, checkbox for other institutions. A lot of organizations don't know how to make the arts accessible because there's a certain dollar amount and this, that, or the other thing. How can Revival partner with existing um, venues, so to speak, and offer an accessible opportunity for them, but also for their their current audience? So I don't know what that looks like. That's why I need to take a hiatus and <laughs> figure it out. Um, but ultimately, and, and you know, just, um, yeah, just, just, stabilizing the institution now after COVID and, and figuring out what's going to be best for our students. And yeah, I think that's what I'm, I'm most excited about. I'm ready to get my hands dirty with directing and choreography again. I mean, I'm doing a show right now, but um, I, I'm personally ready to do some big, big shows again. So what are some, uh, where can people find you? Are you, are, I guess Revival is not doing any shows? Well, we are doing, okay. we're doing shows through October and then we're going to do another, um, concert in December when um, we're going to do shows again starting in like late spring of next year um, it's just they're not going to look like what they used to look like <laughs> um, in our little venue or whatever it is but um, um, there's going to be a wider reach than just Coatesville which is exciting so um, you can find all of our information at www.revival-productions.com um, and the school is ccschooloftheartscom and we're on social media Instagram, Facebook all the things. All the things. If you have enjoyed this episode, please be sure to uh, share, like, subscribe. Share with your friends. I said that twice. Just do it. <laughs> Just do the work. Just do the work. <laughs> um, if you want to uh, follow us for upcoming episodes, we you can follow us just search the story Corey Rosen, C O R Y R O S E N. You can find us anywhere. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all, all the social medias. Everything, everything, everywhere, all the time. And if you want to check us out tomorrow, we have a awesome guest, Stephanie Grace. She has performed our open for Taylor Swift. She's been uh, around the circuit, Nashville. She's from Pottstown, and I'm really excited to talk to her. The day after that, we have our very own Nick DeSanto. He is a one-man, a, a local one-man band around the area, which I'm super excited to figure out how the heck he builds his rigs and. And what what does that mean? How how uh, hard? <laughs> it Definitely must challenging. Be. Yeah, I, I wonder how much back pain he has. <laughs> <laughs> well, with all that said, I hope you guys have a wonderful rest of your day, and we'll see you guys later. Bye.